Merry Christmas. Welcome. Welcome to our second week of Advent. Uh, Last week, we learned in the first week of Advent, or the arrival of Jesus, that it led the world to worship fully as he created, as all of creation welcomed the coming king, their king, the long-awaited Messiah, who broke the silence of hundreds of years as the people were captivated by the birth of a child to an old and barren couple and the pregnancy of their cousin, a young servant girl. But the key to the arrival, and we must state it this morning, the key to the arrival of the world's Savior is how we receive him. We have to. It was to receive him as the gift that he was intended to be for all of us. It was to trust him. It was to trust him in faith. And that is actually what the second week of Advent is all about. The second candle of Advent is historically known as the faith candle. Hence, we had a hope and now we respond in faith. And today we're going to talk about how we practically, as the Bible says, exercise faith. And will lead to a place of spending less. But here's the reality um, as we start this morning. Maybe you've experienced it. Even though Jesus was to be received as a gift and we were to have our faith in God entirely, that has proven difficult. It's been proven very hard over many, many years. It's proven today and it was proven even in the days of Jesus coming. It is proven very difficult for people to place their trust solely in him and to turn their back on themselves. Amen. So uh, what I want to do is I saved this portion of scripture for this week. So we could start with where one more individual who was let know about the coming of the Messiah and the role that he would play. I wanted to start here because it's truly a faith response that we see in Joseph. And that will lead us into the coming of Jesus uh, a little bit later in Luke 2. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we read from Matthew 1. And how the birth of Jesus was revealed to what would be his surrogate or stepfather. From verse 18, Matthew 1. Now this is how the birth of Jesus Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph spoke up, or when Joseph woke up, He did exactly as the angel had commanded him, took Mary home as his wife, and he did not consummate their marriage until she had given birth to her son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Father, we just ask that as we look today and turn our hearts to your word and, and Jesus and how we are to respond to him, we pray that the scriptures reveal the life that you have for us, life abundant in him that we'd receive that gift, and God, we would do whatever we need to to remove those roadblocks in our lives that keep us from receiving him, that our flesh would fall off, and we'd create more space for your spirit to move in our minds and hearts. And we ask that you'd have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Excuse me. 
Uh, this morning, I want to give you my first point. It's this. We are called to live submitted rather than to demand. We are called to a living of a submitted life rather than demanding. Joseph's faith in God led him to respond rather than to react in his flesh as he initially had planned. Now, what we need to look at like what this man's up against. And I think it's pretty important to paint that picture. This man faced public disgrace, public disrespect. He faced public dishonor, potentially being excommunicated for something that was completely out of his control. As much as he'd want to explain himself publicly to others, how logical does his explanation sound? It's insane. Here, let's just put it in perspective. This could be Joseph's best case. Okay, so she got pregnant and it wasn't by me. She says that she's still a virgin and that she's been impregnated by God himself. Joseph is counting the cost. He's considering what would happen to the people around him and how they would receive the story. He is saying out loud, I'm going to be the butt of every joke and quite possibly excommunicated from my own tribe because they will think that I have dishonored her, broken the law, and I have disgraced the woman that I've committed my life to. It's ludicrous. The entire description makes no sense. So in his first and most common reaction is his logical response is this. He decides to divorce his commitment to her privately, revoking his plans of a future with Mary because of her obvious infidelity and the lawfully he's allowed to. He has permission, but he does this and he wants to keep it private in hopes to not publicly dishonor her as well. This is logical. It is a reaction to this gripping news and the fear of how he will be perceived. Anyone relate to that? Anyone had gotten news that wasn't quite what you wanted and there was a fear of what could be, a fear of how you might be perceived if you go along? Just how many of us have been here at least once in our lives? Instead of trusting what will be, Joseph reacts in his flesh, at least initially, to what could be. He logically tries to put it together and he logically says no initially to what God is doing before Gabriel reveals the truth and affirms everything for him. And he tries to push away as to save his own reputation. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you have seen yourself here a time or two. Instead of trusting what will be as God has promised, you react in fear to what could be. Anyone? He stands to be ruined and marry alongside of him. So he seeks to make separation from her in this whole situation to save his own reputation. And why could we blame him? I wouldn't. We wouldn't blame him. But in the midst of his fear, in the midst of his plans, in the middle of his, his preparation to go to her, he's given an invitation. This invitation is to trust and join God in playing an impeccable role in redeeming all of mankind. He gets to be the Messiah, the stepfather or adopted human, almost a surrogate father to Jesus if he'll accept it. And in seeing this from his perspective, he could think to himself, after Gabriel spoke to him, I get to live in crucial close proximity to Jesus. I get to be in deeply uh, important relationship to him. And if I'm willing to have my own reputation ruined, I get to come alongside and be the fatherly figure to the savior of the entire world and watch him be raised from a babe to a man. 
Let me ask you this. If I'm willing to have my own reputation ruined, I get to be in close proximity to Jesus. In the grand scheme of God's plan to redeem all of mankind, do you think that he is or even has to be concerned with your or my individual reputation? Jesus is, I mean, sorry, Joseph is weighing the cost and when you consider discipleship to Jesus, Jesus asks us to do the same. In fact, in Luke 14, 26, 29, it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, his wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, I want you to key in on this, he cannot be my disciple. Say that again. He cannot. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't take their dreams and all their desires and crucify them, choosing my way over their own, cannot be my disciple. It's not an easy task. It is not just a easy cost. He goes on and says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it at the beginning? Can he endure? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and in the end is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him. The reality is to receive Jesus' invitation into redemption story, it costs us our former life. It costs us all our former dreams. It becomes the death of a dream, if you will. To embrace his dream for us and to trust that he created us in his image before the foundation of the world. And in the, re in the receiving of Jesus and the redemption of our own soul, we join his story, which we believe because he loved us more than we could ever love ourselves or be loved by anyone else on the planet, that his way is better. Let me ask you that question. Is his way actually better? God in his gracious love, while he doesn't have to care about our personal reputation in our new life with him, in his kindness and in his love, here's the beauty of our God. He does. He actually cares. He loves us. He desires that we'd be adequately reflecting him to the world. And we can't adequately, adequately reflect him to the world when we have ourselves in the way. Amen? When our desires continually get in the way of his desires, we don't adequately adequately reflect him. I don't know why adequately is so difficult for me to say today. <laughs> but more than that, he welcomes us into a life of abundance, one filled with his plans, his dreams, his fulfilling desires. And let me ask you, how many of you think that a perfect being who has always been and will always be has a better dream for you than you could dream for yourself? Our acceptance of his invitation leads to life. All else, as Matthew 8.35 says, leads to death. So consider the cost and consider the benefit. Joseph suffered no ridicule that we hear of, but rather got to play the human form of a father of the Savior of the world and got to teach him his family trade, his family traditions, his ways, etc. When Gabriel appeared to Joseph in a dream only to affirm all that Mary had shared with him, and after said explanation, Joseph does something incredible. He responds rather than reacting. He doesn't react in fear as he had initially planned. He responds in faith to what God has said. In verse 24, it says that he did what the angel of the Lord told him immediately. He did what the angel of, uh, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. How many of us think it makes God smile when our father tells us to do something and we do it? 
How many of you, when you tell your kids to do something and they do it, you are pleased? How many of you have the opposite reaction when you tell your kids to do something and they don't? We are his children, the word says. Without logical explanation, yet with a word from the Lord himself, Joseph worships by obedience. He trusts that God is not a liar. Do you trust that God's not a liar? Luke 1.37, let me repeat that from last week. It says, for no word from God will ever fail. Let that settle in. He trusts that God is not a liar. He worships in obedience because there is no word from God that has ever been given or will be given tomorrow or today that will ever fail in your life or in my life. As God brings us all into fruition, he even waits until after the delivery of God's son, Joseph steps in to fulfill his commitment to his covenant wife by consummating their marriage and lawfully sealing this agreement. See, that was even different because at the at the day of their taking their vows, it was expected before they would even celebrate today like we do in the reception that they would go into the bridal chambers and consummate the union. That was the only way that lawfully in Hebrew uh, culture, they were seen as married. This man makes a vow and a promise to a woman, a woman. They go through the celebration. They bring this child into the world and he's not even able to consummate his love for her, his commitment to her, the covenant to her lawfully until after she gives birth to their firstborn. This is different. So we need to understand all that has been asked of Joseph. And we need to recognize that the same is asked of us to follow Jesus. It's not just do life as you wish and piggyback Jesus on the back of it. It's not just celebrate at Christmas showing up and then have your mind driven by all that you desire, all that you want, all that you look to open under the tree on, on that faithful morning or that you wish to see your kids open on that faithful morning and then piggyback Jesus on top of it. It's not that way. It is, will be, and will always be about Jesus and how we obediently respond in worship to him even when he calls us into the most difficult of circumstances. Are you willing to follow when you're uncertain of the outcome? I want to read from Luke 2 and that faithful night that Jesus broke the silence. Verse 1, it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Verse 2, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house of the line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news and will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Second point. 
God has called us to live simply rather than deserving. You can say it this way, that we're living simply rather than entitled. The world rejects rather than receives her king. Think about it, man. There was no room in the inn. The light shines into the darkness, as John tells us, and the darkness does not receive it. Though this is the king of kings, Lord of lords, creator of the universe, deserving of a birth in the most pristine of earthly palaces, the most prestigious of hospital rooms. He doesn't demand it. Amen? Even though, how many of you believe that he's deserving of the largest palaces that we by human hands can create as he steps from a throne into humanity, but he doesn't demand it? Though it is truly not sensible that royalty would be born in a stable, It isn't fitting that a king be born in a feeding trough, humiliated before the world without a decency to give a pregnant woman a bed, let alone the mother of the Messiah. It doesn't make sense in the worldly narrative. But can I encourage you? It makes perfect sense in the narrative of God. He was revealing to a darkened world his love. He reveals it by not demanding esteem, but by coming humbly, loving the least, serving the beggar, the outcast, being no respecter of persons, and then eventually dying a humiliating death to receive and redeem every single one of us, to redeem all of mankind. He came to show us what true love actually looks like. And that was, the most, that was most on display when the creator of all that we see steps out of heaven, and in all of his power, takes the form of the most innocent and dependent human state, the form of a baby, and enters the world through the humble housing of human servants, a stable, and is placed in the feeding space of animals used to conceal human scraps. This is Christmas, but this is love, true love, selfless submission on display for all the world to notice and to be captivated and captured by it. And can I encourage you, church, that this is our call. Not that we would be born in the stable, but that we as his people would live simply, putting on display true love, selfless submission in our lives so that the dying and the desperate world around us might have hope. That they gain hope in their death because how many of you recognize this world is dying quickly and many of them are in despair? They gain hope by our own self-death, our our taking up our cross, our laying our personal desires aside to choose his. God hasn't chose to reveal himself through a king to look down his nose at others, though he had every right to, demanding our reverence. Instead, he chooses to reveal himself in the man that saw those that we so quickly overlook. He saw and touched the demon-possessed, the blind, the mute, the deaf, the leper, the crippled. He called as disciples the tax collector, and amen, he called the thief. People who could afford him no status, they offered him no privilege. In fact, they earned him the opposite. They they earned him ridicule and questions. When this is the example of our Lord, How do we dare justify living in a way that does the exact opposite of him as his church? Demanding that others respect us 
rubbing elbows with only the affluent and the influential, those who will help us aspire to go further in life and clamoring for that which we feel we deserve. We're entitled to. You hear that? Do you hear the juxtaposed position that the world and the culture has told us we need or deserve? And yet the way that heaven met earth, the way that Jesus stepped into humanity around us was the exact opposite. This is the truth. This is the advent, the story of his arrival. And the truth, because he came the way that he did, he kept us from getting what we deserve. Amen? How many of you have ever had that prayer not go answered the way that you wanted? And you've heard that old faithful country song that sometimes prayers go unanswered and you don't get what you deserve. How many of you recognize what you deserve? I'm painfully aware of what I deserve. And I'm grateful that the advent, the arrival, the story of him coming in the humblest of fashion kept me from getting what I truly deserve. So instead, church, what we're called to do is not live as if we are aspiring and not live as if we are looking down our nose at others and not living as if we are better than those around us. We are to follow the example of our Savior and we're to live simply, walk amongst those who are otherwise overlooked. We're to walk simply amongst those whom he came to die for because he loved them and there was no respecter of persons. Can I ask you a question? How many of us today in our heart have a tendency to respect persons? From Matthew 6, these are Jesus' direct instructions to us. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body or what you'll wear is not life more than food and is not body more than clothes. Jesus is saying, look, how many of us struggle with worry? I want to see a show of hands in this. I, I, how many of us struggle with worry? He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Today, you've got enough to keep you busy. And here's the question. In today, will you stop worrying about all that you desire and want or what you want for those that immediately call you family? And will you trust that he loves you more than you ever thought and he loves them more than you ever dreamt and you can place them in his hands and you can take your anxieties, your fears and place them upon him because he loves you and you can simply follow into a life of abundance, free of worry and completely in his sovereign grip. Amen? He goes on, what does... Let me ask you this. What does eternal investment actually look like? What's it look like to store up treasures in heaven, to focus more there than we do here? To, if you remember the rope from a few weeks ago, instead of focusing on the vapor that we have, the handle, but rather focusing on everything that comes after and it never stops. What's that look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. It looks like the way that he walked amongst us. Verses one through four of Matthew 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward in heaven from your father. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets, but be, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing so that your giving may be in secret. 
as an act of worship, then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. He doesn't just ask us to store it up, all that he's given to us. He didn't ask us just to amass kingdoms for ourselves. He asks us to steward it to those who are in need of his love and to do that practically and spiritually. He asks us to live simply, letting heaven announce and recognize the ministry that we have before others or even with our family, rather than us announcing it for ourselves, much like all of heaven announced the coming of the Messiah to the world, that the Savior of mankind entered the world and they gave that message. The angel revealed himself to the outcast, to the shepherd, which we'll talk more about next week. But they gave it to the least. He commands us to live simply rather than demanding, rather than being entitled so we can truly steward the gospel like he did, loving all in both word and indeed. So how do we live simply? How does that happen? How do we practically exercise a faith that looks like that? It's by spending less. We have to be intentional in this, but we do it by spending less. We have to decide that we're truly content and choosing to live contented rather than in a competition to keep up with culture that is constantly spiraling out of control at a frenetic pace, gaining and trying to grasp more around us. It's a conscious decision to live counter to the culture, to be like Jesus, to be a light in a present and certain darkness. It's to, point three, live satisfied rather than to live dissatisfied. First Timothy 6, 5 says this, people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. I was thinking about the word contentment and I, I, I know that I use that word a lot, but I, I, think, I think it's important that we define it for ourselves. So I went to Merriam-Webster. I looked and saw how they defined it. Look at how Merriam-Webster defines this very word. It is a feeling or showing satisfaction with one's current possessions, status, or situation. I want you to keep that up for a second. And I need to ask us all a question. How content are you? How content am I? Or how discontented in the opposite? Are you answering said discontentment with stuff? We've all done it. In fact, we've been trained to do it. That when you get bad news or you feel a little bit discontented, you run off and buy that shirt that you have to have, right? How many of you, when you get the news that you don't want, immediately go to fast food because it's quicker, you supersize the meal and you eat your feelings? You know what I'm talking about? We've done it. We all medicate in many different ways because we've been trained to medicate in these ways. Because we were all brought up to believe that unless we have it, we're behind. And that couldn't be, further, couldn't be a larger lie for you or I. How many of you have recognized that we are producing and we are amassing technology at such a fast rate that if you just got the newest whatever, you're already behind? So why are you trying to keep up? It's, it makes no sense. 
We move at this frenetic pace and we grasp in desperation to have it, especially if so-and-so has it, right? Look across the street, look across the classroom, look across the yard, look across the office, and we are told by the liar as he whispers in our ear just how invaluable we actually are because we don't have it. You loser, right? You look on social media to check other statuses, you know, just to keep up, right? Only to leave feeling worse about yourself because of their perfect life, which is obviously true and not at all an inaccurate portrayal, right? Because everything on social media, like everything you read on the internet is true. And you walk away feeling depressed even because it isn't what? Your life. You're falling behind. You need to keep up. You become anxious, depressed even because you are even now more aware of how behind we are. So we medicate. Uppers, downers. May we medicate with food like I mentioned. Stuff, etc. Hey, listen. We're not above medicating religiously. To quote the Advent Conspiracy, page 35. We are not above medicating on Jesus himself. It says, Jesus has become a commodity that we consume rather than a king who reigns. Jesus has become a commodity that we ourselves consume rather than a a king who reigns over our heart and leads us and we, his people, his children, his loving family, his subservient servants follow wherever he can go. Can we, can I just ask, can we just stop it already? Can we stop this vicious cycle, leaving us more in debt emotionally, cognitively, spiritually, and yes, even physically at times like this in the Christmas season? I had a girl in my life group look at another girl who is so in debt. She loved her enough to go, hey, can I ask you to do something for me this week, for this, this, this Christmas season? Can you do this for me this year? Can you write letters to all your family to tell them how much they mean? Can you write to all your friends, let them know how much they mean? And will you not spend one dime this Christmas and not go further in debt and let's start making a plan to get out that we can start walking towards it? We need, we need to stop being so dissatisfied with people's lack of acknowledgement of us. That's what she was saying to her. And we need to be overwhelmingly satisfied with God's acknowledgement of us. And how do we know that, that he acknowledges us? How do we know that he loves us? How do we know? At Christmas, we celebrate it. He came. He didn't have to, but he came. How do we know and become overwhelmingly satisfied with God's acknowledgement of us? Jesus came. He came so that we wouldn't have to chase others in hopes that they'd finally love us. He came because he loved you, he loved me. And he came and he didn't stop there. He came to show us a new way of living, a new and abundant life in him, satisfied by his smile over us and gripped by everything that he has for us that we could have never fathomed in our own minds. Rather than being defeated by dissatisfaction and the insatiable desire for more, our practical way that we show our satisfaction and allegiance to him is done by spending less being far more intentional. We have to listen long enough to a world 
we have begun to listen long enough to a world who hates us and the power of the prince there who runs that world, who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy from us. It's developed in us very unhealthy habits of self-disdain, and it's evident through our dissatisfaction. We have to join Jesus in the way that Joseph did and count the cost and simultaneously count the benefit, life abundant, one that we could not plan for ourselves. You may suffer a bit of ridicule for seeking to do Christmas differently. Can I tell you, if we actually join Jesus and make him the central figure of Christmas and respond at Christmas as worship to him, our ego or our rep may stand to be bruised just a bit for a moment. But can I encourage you in hope? When people see that you are intentionally cutting back on presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, that present, to be more present with the people you love, you care about, with your Savior himself, they'll begin to get it and they'll respect it even. When they notice that you're planning for quality over quantity, making individual and intentional investment in them, making memories that are not only for you, but for them. And people begin to see that you are a person of peace in this season of chaos, consumerism. Guess who they're going to come to? Are they going to run to the other frenetic people running around trying to just please the world? They're going to come to you. If they can recognize within you a resolve, a person of peace, they will come to you, they'll confide in you. Because something deep within our souls identifies with your new message, his message of old. When we join him in this, there are people who identify with it. Something deep within our person actually craves it and wants to know the secret to satisfaction. And when the church of Jesus lives satisfied before a world that is desperate in despair, trust me, the world comes running. And this is where we begin to earn the right, begin to share the secret, the truth about Christmas, the truth about our satisfaction, Jesus himself. Spending less begins to lead to giving more, which we'll talk about more next week, but giving more in ways that are practical, ways that are gospel-centric, ways that please him. We have more time to share, more resource. How many of you would just like more energy? more presence and peace of mind, more life abundant. We get to practically share Jesus in deed and likely with the people who are noticing in word. It is all about intention and thus as you prepare this year to give to others. Consider, consider giving them as a person what really speaks to them. This year, consider you Consider your values, consider their values and how much you both value your relationship with each other more than you do the presents you'll unwrap. You may be able to offer them a gift more valuable relationally than spending by spending less in money on them. How many of you think that your world would look differently if your friends and family just knew that you were present with them, listening to them, hearing them, giving them eye contact, rather than just asking them to open something that you bought, maybe even thoughtfully bought, but then you do the thing and jump in the car and run to the next place and blah, 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 blah. 
all to await your bill in January. You know what I'm talking about? Does anyone understand what I'm saying? So in conclusion, the question this this morning is this. So we celebrate the second weekend of Advent and we talk about the faith candle and we talk about practically exercising our faith by spending less. Church, where is your faith? Where is our faith? This Christmas, is it in the stuff or is it in him? Have we in fact counted the cost of what it means to follow him but not just accepted the invitation of Jesus? Have we considered the cost of not accepting the invitation of Jesus? the toll it's taking on us, on everyone around us, by continuing to be driven by culture versus him. Isn't it enough already? I believe that we're due for a change. And it's available. Shouldn't we spend less so that we can actually live and love and give even more? Father, this morning, we ask that as we come to a time of close and response, we ask that this word, this truth that is embodied in your son, Jesus, would be the thing that convict us by the power of your spirit as you stir right now, even in this room. I pray that you would lead us to a place of response. I pray that you would begin to speak to us about how we individually, or we as a family, or we as a life group, we as a church, a congregation, are to be obedient to this word and how we're to respond to you. How are we, God, to step out and, and again, show our allegiance? How are we right now in this room to practice our, our steps of faith, our show of faith in you and begin to practice exercising said faith by spending less this season? We love you and we thank you. God, this morning we count the cost. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what we just heard. I'm gonna ask us to respond in one of three ways. There may be more than these three ways for you to respond this morning. I'm not sure all that God is stirring in your heart, but I wanna encourage you. To the front of the stage, my right and left, there's a table that we have present every week and it is available with the elements of communion, the Lord's Supper. Here it is. This morning, as you come to the Lord's table, I want you to count the cost. Jesus chose simplicity over what he deserved in coming. The question is, will we? Will we join him in living simply in remembrance of his example for and to us, that we would do that for others? We come remembering what he did, and we respond in that way. This morning, this altar is open, and I ask you to come, and I want you to consider one question. Are you living entitled? Are you demanding where you should be? surrendering. Say that again. Are you living entitled? Do you keep demanding of him and the people in your life when you should be surrendering? Come today. Kneel. Thank him for loving you. Thank him for coming and make a change. Today at the cross, we, we practically put on these crosses the people that God has entrusted us, that we love, that we're trying to live the gospel for. Let me ask you this. Do others see peace in you? Are you that person they can come confide in? Are you living satisfied, spending less in order to give more as an example to and for them? This morning, as you put their name on the cross and you ask the church to pray for them, I want you to consider how you practically do that. Are you a person of peace and are you taking the steps to show the world around you that you are? I'm gonna ask you to stand as we respond.